0: Hello and welcome to this installment of AZ Law. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Weick, and I'm a Phoenix attorney. We explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems on this new program. AZ Law came about to provide Arizona legal news for Sun Sounds of Arizona, which is a nonprofit reading service for people with disabilities, which make it difficult for them to read or hold printed material. It's broadcast on the third Saturday of each month at 11 a.m., and other installments are available there on demand. Our ArizonaLaw.org website is independent of Sun Sounds, but its prime focus is to support Sun Sounds, which is a service of the Rio Salado Community College, along with KJZZ and KBAQ radio stations, by the way. Our website has links to those stations and information on how you can become a member of them and help Sun Sounds of Arizona as well. We urge you to do so now at arizonaslaw.org. AZ Law, of course, also is now available for download at that website as well as on iTunes podcasts, Google Play Music and Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you find your podcasts. Hopefully, you can search for AZ Law, and find us right there. Tell your friends, subscribe, download, enjoy. Give us suggestions to improve it. We have lots of plans for this program in the coming year, 2020. Uh, we will be expanding the AZ Law programming offerings. So stay tuned for that. Give, drop us a line if you have any suggestions. Well, there's lots of articles to read this month, or this week, so let's go ahead and get right to them. Here's our first article. It is from the Arizona Daily Star on November 22nd. Reported by Henry Breen, the headline is Not Guilty Jurors Acquit Border Aid Volunteer Scott Warren on Harboring Charges. Federal court jurors in Tucson drew a line between harboring and help on Wednesday when they acquitted border aid worker Scott Warren on felony charges for the assistance that he gave to two Central American men last year. The not guilty verdict came after just two and a half hours of deliberation and it was greeted with cheering, laughter and tears from Warren's supporters and fellow aid workers, including a contingent of clergy members from across the country. The government failed in its attempt to criminalize basic human kindness, Warren told the crowd outside the downtown courthouse after it was over. The volunteer for the Tucson-based humanitarian aid group called No More Deaths was indicted on two felony harboring charges after authorities raided an Ajo migrant aid station known as The Barn in January of 2018. Warren was arrested along with two men who had crossed the border illegally, Honduran Jose Sacaria Gade, who's 21 years old, and Salvadoran Christian Perez Villanueva, 23 years old. In closing arguments, defense lawyer Gregory Kaikendal said Warren only provided humanitarian aid to the men. Being a good Samaritan is not against the law. Practicing the golden rule is not a felony, Kaikendal told the jury. But federal prosecutors argued that Warren actually hid the men for four days, then gave them directions to skirt a nearby checkpoint and continue their journey north solely to help them evade capture by the Border Patrol. He gave them a place to stay with four walls that law enforcement couldn't see through. It is the literal definition of harboring, said Prosecutor Nathaniel Walters. They never needed medical attention. What they needed was a place to hide, and that is exactly what the defendant gave them. This marked the second time this year that prosecutors failed to win a conviction in the case. In June, jurors deadlocked on charges that Warren was part of a conspiracy to smuggle the migrants across the border. This time around, prosecutors decided to drop the conspiracy charge and retry Warren on the two harboring charges. The second trial began last week. Warren took the stand on Tuesday as the final witness to testify. Michael Bailey, U.S. attorney for Arizona, said he disagreed with the jury's decision but added that it won't change his office's approach to cases like this. Although we are disappointed in the verdict, it will not deter us from continuing to prosecute all of the re-entry and re-entry cases we have, as well as all the harboring and smuggling and trafficking cases that we have, Bailey said. And we will not distinguish between whether someone is trafficking or harboring for money or whether they are doing it out of what I would say is a misguided sense of social justice or a belief in open borders or whatever, he said. Whatever the reason, if you are harboring or trafficking, we will prosecute when the case comes in. We have got plenty of work to do, said Bailey. Warren still faces prison time or probation for separate misdemeanor charges related to leaving humanitarian aid on the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge west of Tucson in 2017. After Wednesday's verdict was read and the jury excused, U.S. District Judge Raynor C. Collins found Warren guilty of illegally operating a motor vehicle in a wilderness area in connection with the No More Deaths Group's A-Drop at Cabeza Prieta. Warren was also charged with littering the refuge with abandoned property, but Collins acquitted him of that misdemeanor count because the aid worker was exercising his religious beliefs when he left the food and water there. Warren is scheduled to be sentenced on the illegal driving charge on February 18th of next year. Walters said the misdemeanor could result in probation or up to six months behind bars. During a brief news conference outside the courthouse after the trial, Kuykendall said he was overwhelmingly happy for Scott and proud to know him. No More Deaths volunteer Gina Jackson led the crowd in a moment of silence for Jose and Christian wherever they are. We've been saying for years that humanitarian aid is never a crime, and today 12 jurors agreed, she said. Warren said he was too exhausted to answer any questions, but he read a brief statement from the screen of a cell phone. He thanked everyone who supported him during the trial and all the people who couldn't be there because they were out keeping up the humanitarian work in the desert. As we stand here, people's brothers, sisters, fathers, spouses and children are in the midst of the perilous desert crossing, Warren said. The need for humanitarian aid continues. Since 2001, the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner has identified more than 3,000 sets of human remains suspected of belonging to migrants who died in the deserts of southern Arizona. Warren's trials this year marked the first time in more than a decade that a southern Arizona border aid worker faced felony human smuggling charges. And that report in the Arizona Daily Star from last about a week about a week ago was from Henry Breen. He was the reporter. The headline: "Not Guilty. Jurors Acquit Border Aid wo- Volunteer Scott Warren on Harboring Charges." And our next article is from ArizonasLaw.org, our own website uh, with legal news reporting and also uh, hosting this AZ Law program as well. And the headline here is Supreme Court told recall of Payson Mayor Tom Morrissey should be back on the ballot and the framers were clear. Here's the article. The group that gathered more valid signatures than required by the Payson clerk reached back to Arizona's 1910 Constitutional Convention to explain to the Arizona Supreme Court why the recall of Mayor Tom Morrissey should be put back on next March's ballot. Unite Payson filed their opening brief in the expedited election matter this past week. Judge Randall Warner, who was filling in in Gila County Superior Court, determined that the recall provision of the state constitution should use the number of votes cast in the most recent mayoral election to determine how many signatures needed to be collected for a recall. The constitution references... The last preceding general election. However, Payson has not had a general election since 2002 because under their laws, the successful candidate in the primary election has always received more than 50 percent of the vote and eliminated the need for a general election. When a group of citizens, using Unite Payson as their moniker, applied to circulate a recall petition in August, the town clerk, after seeking legal counsel, used the 2002 general election total rather than the 2018 primary election total. When those signatures were turned in, she set March 10th for the recall election. Morrissey sued, and after a well-attended trial, Judge Warner found in his favor and struck the recall petitions. Unite Payson has appealed to the Arizona Supreme Court and says that the judge should not have unilaterally rewritten the constitutional language simply based upon his belief that the higher threshold is more appropriate due to Payson's growth over the past 17 years. Attorney Eric Spencer argues that the court must give meaning to all of the words in that last preceding general election phrase. The case is being handled on an expedited basis, as all election cases are, and Morrissey's response is due before Thanksgiving. The court will decide the matter without oral argument. And the headline on that article was Supreme Court told recall of Payson Mayor Tom Morrissey should be back on the ballot, and the framers were clear. Our next article is also election-related, and it is reported by Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. The headline is, Progressive Groups Challenge Law on Deadline for Ballots. And this was also filed, as the previous article was, on November 26th. Here's the article. Saying voters are being disenfranchised, two groups are asking a federal judge to void an Arizona law that says that ballots have to be received by county officials by 7 p.m. on Election Day to be counted. In new legal papers filed here on Tuesday, Attorney Sarah Gonski said the state has no legitimate interest in enforcing the deadline, particularly when the state is promoting that people cast their ballots by mail. Although Arizona may certainly set a reasonable deadline to receive ballots to ensure the finality of election results, the current Election Day receipt deadline is unreasonable and disenfranchising, she wrote. It is contrary to voters' reasonable expectations, necessitates that ballots be cast far earlier than they need to be, and is poorly communicated to voters. What Gonski told Judge Dominic Lanza would be reasonable is to require that ballots be postmarked by the 7 p.m. deadline and then received within five business days afterwards. After all, Arizona need not complete its total vote count until 20 days after Election Day, she said. Gonski said this is not just an academic question. She specifically cited the 2016 presidential preference primary, where more than 72,000 Republicans cast a ballot saying they wanted Marco Rubio to be the GOP nominee. She said it was that requirement to have ballots in by that 7 p.m. Election Day deadline that caused so many people to, quote unquote, waste their vote on a ghost candidate. Bogansky also cited figures that she said prove that minority voters, particularly those in rural counties, are five to six times more likely than Anglos to have their early ballots uncounted because they did not arrive on time. And she said at least some of the blame for that is traceable to Arizona's long history of discrimination against minority voters. Discrimination in education has led to persistent gaps that have left these minority voters less educated than their white counterparts, which makes them less likely to be aware of the Election Day receipt deadline, she wrote. At least part of Gonski's lawsuit relies on that disproportionate effect to claim the deadline violates the Voting Rights Act. It generally prohibits states from enacting laws that impair the rights of minorities to vote. But she also claims that the law is an impermissible burden on the right of all people to vote. Gonski is representing two groups. One is Voto Latino, which she said is a non-profit group that is involved in trying to register Latinos to vote. The other is Priorities USA, which she describes as a non-profit voter-centric progressive advocacy and service organization. It names Secretary of State Katie Hobbs as the state's chief election officer, as a defendant. An aide to Hobbs said she was studying the lawsuit but does not comment about ongoing legal matters. Central to the litigation is the wide use of mail ballots, with about 1.9 million votes cast that way in the 2018 election out of about 2.4 million ballots cast altogether. 1.9 out of 2.4 million. Wow big percentage. Gonski said while people who get early ballots can bring them to a polling location on Election Day, about 90 percent of people who voted with a mail-in ballot returned it through the U.S. Postal Service. She said that personal drop-off option can be more time-consuming and burdensome for rural voters who often live many miles from a drop-off location, as well as Hispanic and Latino voters who she said may have difficulty obtaining transportation or leaving work during the hours when county recorders' offices are open. And Gonski said the situation is complicated by a 2016 law that now makes it a crime for volunteers and others to help collect early ballots. Gonski's law firm has been involved in separate legal efforts, so far unsuccessful, to void that ban on what has been called ballot harvesting. The result, she said, is borne out by figures from the 2018 election when she said Maricopa County rejected 1,535 ballots for arriving late. And Navajo County reported rejecting an eye-popping 3,062 late ballots, over 8% of all ballots cast in that county, she told Lanza. Clearly, a large swath of Arizona voters believe their ballot is timely, even when it is not, Gonski said, with election officials and average voters unable to say exactly how early people need to be dropping their ballots into post office boxes in order to ensure that they arrive on time to be counted. She said that just last month, the Pima County Recorder's Office provided two different recommended deadlines for when voters were, quote-unquote, required to mail their ballots for them to be counted. County's recommendations on when to place a ballot in the mail shift for a simple reason. Those recommendations are purely guesses, Gonski said. Beyond that, she argued that it is reasonable for people to believe that a ballot is timely if it is postmarked by Election Day. Postmarks are used to assess the timeliness of payments, applications, and other documents submitted to the government in other contexts, she said, including taxes. And she said using a postmark rule makes good sense. Mail delivery times in Arizona are unpredictable, particularly in rural areas where home delivery is not common and even local mail is often rerouted through central processing facilities in far-flung cities, Gonski said. That issue of the disparate impact on Hispanics, which could be key to getting the relief sought, raises a separate question of why one that Gonski conceded in the legal papers she cannot answer. But she has some theories of why, and not just that her claim there has been discrimination against minorities in education in Arizona. She also said there is a lack of language assistance to voters. Gonski said that is coupled with sustained resistance to bilingual education and mandated English-only education. Hispanic and Latino voters are less likely to understand the instructions provided by county election officials regarding the Election Day receipt deadline, particularly when those instructions are inconsistent, Gonski told the judge. And that article by Howard Fisher was headlined Progressive Group's Challenge Law on Deadline for Ballots. Okay, next we have a pro and con commentaries, dueling commentaries, on a subject that we've covered here in AZ Law before. And the first one is from Arizona Republic opinion columnist Lori Roberts. Headline, no wonder Arizona's regents don't want to judge snooping into ASU's hotel giveaway. Here is her column. The Arizona Board of Regents is hoping to sidestep a lawsuit challenging Arizona State University's $37 million giveaway to the billionaire owner of a planned Tempe Hotel and Convention Center. Attorney General Mark Burnovich sued earlier this year, contending ASU unconstitutionally sold prime land for peanuts and agreed to build a hotel conference center the university can use only seven days a year, unless the university pays rent, that is. Of course, the Regents and ASU don't consider the Omni Luxury Hotel and Convention Center deal a giveaway. They consider it an investment. But it seems they'd rather not have a judge take a look-see at the arrangement. Thank you very much. On Friday, the Regents asked Arizona Tax Court Judge Christopher Witten to toss out Brnovich's suit. The regents contend it's too late for the Republican Attorney General to try to stop ASU's deal with Texas billionaire Robert Rowling for his planned 330-room hotel and convention center in downtown Tempe. Brnovich has for several years tried to rein in the regents first for raising tuition and fees by up to 370 percent over the last 15 years and then for concocting a scheme that allows commercial developers to avoid property taxes by building on tax-exempt university-owned land. The tuition lawsuit was dismissed by a Maricopa County Superior Court judge who ruled the attorney general of the state lacked standing to sue over tuition. And Witten ruled in July that it is A-OK for ASU to provide a tax dodge to commercial developers who are looking to avoid the muss and fuss of property taxes. Ironically, ASU says it must do these deals to generate revenue because the state has dramatically cut funding for universities. Never mind, apparently, the dramatic increase in funding provided by those massive tuition hikes that Bernovich is not allowed to challenge. Now, according to a report by Capital Media Services, the regents are asking Witten to toss out Bernovich's challenge to the Omni deal, claiming he filed it two months too late. Specifically, that he needed to challenge the deal by February, one year after the papers were signed. Brnovich challenged the deal in April as an amendment to his January lawsuit over the property tax scheme. The Regents' attorney, Paul Eckstein, says Brnovich had ample time to challenge the deal. This transaction was talked about at the Board of Regents level for a year and a half or so before the transaction was signed on February 28th of 2018, he told Whitten. The AG, meanwhile, says the January filing of the original lawsuit should cover the one-year window and that really, the clock did not start ticking until late last year when the AG realized the extent of the giveaway. They kind of are right now are saying anytime the AG's office knows about any deal whatsoever, they should immediately investigate, Assistant Attorney General Beau Roysden told the judge. We can't presume that every public entity, city, county, town is acting in bad faith. Brnovich contends the deal violates the state constitution's gift clause by providing a $37 million giveaway in the form of discounted property and funding for a conference center and parking garage for a private corporation. ASU has defended the deal as an investment that will eventually pay off to the tune of $140 million. No word on how many decades it'll take to enjoy that $140 million yield, but I'm guessing few of us will be alive then. It'll be up to Judge Witten to decide whether to throw out Brnovich's lawsuit without considering the merits. If he does, he won't have to consider the sheer outrageousness of this, this giveaway, which according to Brnovich's lawsuit breaks down like this. million by undervaluing the university-owned property at Mill Avenue and University Drive. The regents, at ASU's request, waived a public auction and instead allowed ASU to lease 1.6 acres of land to Omni for $85 per square foot as part of a lease purchase arrangement. This as a nearby hotel property sold for $212 per square foot. $19.5 million. ASU agreed to build a 30,000-square-foot hotel conference center, one that ASU can use only seven days per year unless it pays rent. $8 million. ASU agreed to build a $30 million 1,200-space parking garage with 275 spaces for the exclusive use of the hotel. The hotel, of course, will keep the revenue from those 275 spaces. In return for ASU's $28 million investment, Omni would pay ASU $5.9 million up front for the land and $1 million a year in rent, an amount that will increase over the life of the 60-year deal. This instead of paying property taxes on the land and the hotel conference center. After 60 years, the hotel has the option to buy the land and improvements for $10. Is it any wonder the regents are trying to stop this lawsuit before the judge actually considers it? And that was a column from Lori Roberts. No wonder Arizona's regents don't want a judge snooping into ASU's hotel giveaway. And now for the response written by Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State University. And the headline is, For the last time, our ASU Omni hotel deal is not a dishonest dishonest scheme. Here is his column that was published in the Arizona Republic. Policymakers have asked Arizona State University to be more entrepreneurial and not rely solely upon state revenue for financial health. We have done precisely that successfully, if perhaps not the way that Lori Roberts and the state attorney general expected. One example is by putting our land and real estate assets to work. We have converted land holdings and philanthropic donations into economic workhorses. Not one-time sales of land, but long-term investments that will create far more revenue for the university over time. We renovated a football stadium at a cost of nearly $400 million, and we did it without state dollars or a tax increase. When is it reasonable to step in and say... That's not what we meant by being entrepreneurial. A review of that facts, or those facts, should be, suggests that the Omni Hotel deal is not the time or place for that to happen. Roberts is wrong from the very first words of her column, asserting that the Arizona Board of Regents is hoping to sidestep a lawsuit. Quite the contrary, the lawsuit has been filed. The Regents are in it. There is no sidestepping it. She writes, a $37 million giveaway. That is the wrong dollar amount, and it is a complete mischaracterization of the terms. ASU will invest approximately $27 million, and it will get the conference center and hotel both that the university and the city of Tempe desire. A parking garage to be shared by the hotel, conference center, and university— and rent payments beginning in year one and continuing for at least 60 years. ASU makes an investment. ASU gets a material and financial return on that investment. Prime land for peanuts is how Roberts characterizes how ASU valued its real estate in this transaction. The price the attorney general uses, and Roberts repeats, is pre-rent, not accounting for the $1 million annual rent payment, which results in the university receiving considerably more over the life of this agreement. She is mixing apples and oranges, or to continue her metaphor, walnuts and cashews. Witten ruled in July that it is A-OK for ASU to provide a tax dodge, according to Roberts. Actually, not true. Judge Witten ruled that the property on which the attorney general sought to collect taxes exempt and that the Board of Regents and ASU followed the law, as established by the state constitution. She turns a blind eye to reality with her statement concocting a scheme that allows commercial developers to avoid property taxes. First, as Judge Witten noted, there are no taxes to avoid. Second, the commercial developer is paying a fee in lieu of taxes that negates any perceived discount. And third, this is a public project that has been scrutinized and approved by public oversight bodies at the local and state level and that follows Arizona law. Schemes do not follow rigorous public processes. Her single flirtation with the truth is expressed when Roberts writes, ASU has defended the deal as an investment that will eventually pay off to the tune of $140 million. Not content with that, she concludes that thought by saying, few of us will be alive when that comes to pass. In fact, money will become begin coming to the university in year one and continue for another 59 years. Entrepreneurial, you might say. A piece of land that has not been on the property tax rolls since the Reagan administration will continue not to be on the property tax rolls. But a lot of other good things can and will happen that will be good for the city of Tempe, the citizens of the Valley, the university, and the private sector, both on this site and on adjacent private property that collects property taxes. And that's the end of the column, the responsive column by Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State University. The headline on that in the Republic was, for the last time, our ASU Omni hotel deal is not a dishonest scheme. And let's finish up with this article, also from Howard Fisher, Capital Media Services, headline, Anti-Abortion Group Wants to Help Defend State in Planned Parenthood Suit. An organization that counsels women not to terminate their pregnancies wants the right to help Attorney General Mark Brnovich fend off legal challenges by Planned Parenthood to Arizona's abortion laws. Attorneys for the Choices Pregnancy Center contend the organization has unique interests to defend and information to supply in the legal fight between Planned Parenthood and the state. Specifically, attorney Kevin Thuriot told U.S. District Court Judge Jennifer Zips that the organization is concerned that Planned Parenthood seeks to void a state law that requires a woman to wait 24 hours between her first visit to a doctor and actually getting an abortion. If plaintiffs prevail, many women will no longer learn, with at least 24 hours to act on that knowledge, the private agencies and services like Choices are available to assist, he wrote. Nor will they learn of Arizona's list of agencies that offer alternatives to the abortions, on which List Choices is specifically included. But Catalina Vergara, representing Planned Parenthood, is asking the judge to reject allowing choices to intervene in the case. She said it has no legitimate interest in the laws regulating abortions as it is not a medical provider affected by those statutes. CPC moves to intervene in this case not to protect any concrete interests of its own, but to advocate for restricting the options of Arizonans seeking access to safe legal abortion, she wrote. It has no more of a stake in this litigation than any other Arizonan who opposes women's reproductive rights. Choice's own legal filings acknowledge its aim is to deter women from terminating their pregnancy by preserving the existing laws. If plaintiffs succeed, more women will abort without all the information necessary to make a fully informed decision, Theriot said. This will cause more women to later come to regret their choice to abort and struggle with grief more anguished and sorrow more profound when they learn only after the event what they once did not know about the implications of their decision and the options that had been available to them. And there's something else. Theriot also told Zips that Choices has a financial interest in the outcome of the case. He said if it has to devote more dollars to helping women with post-abortion regret, it will have less money to reach out to pregnant women considering abortion in hopes of convincing them otherwise. At stake is how many entities Planned Parenthood will have to battle in its lawsuit claiming that some provisions of existing abortion laws are unconstitutional. One is the rule that requires patients to visit clinics in person, twice at least 24 hours apart, to receive certain state-mandated counseling before proceeding with abortion. Planned Parenthood also is challenging statutes and rules that now prohibit anyone other than a licensed physician from providing abortions. That bars the use of nurse practitioners who are more available in rural areas than abortion-trained doctors. And it also contests prohibitions on the use of telemedicine. Arizona law allows medical advice to be given and prescriptions to be written after a video conference with patients, with the lone exception being when an abortion is involved. This is not the first legal go-round on several of these issues. In 2011, the state court of appeals upheld the restrictions, rejecting arguments that they impose undue restrictions on a woman's constitutional right to choose to terminate a pregnancy. Appellate judge Peter Swan also said it is legally irrelevant that nurse practitioners, who are more available in rural areas than abortion-trained doctors, have a comparable safety record. But in filing suit earlier this year, attorneys for Planned Parenthood cited a 2016 U.S. Supreme Court ruling that abortion restrictions need to be judged on whether they create an undue burden on women. Attorney Alice Clapman said what that means is courts look at statutes to determine if the benefits of the restriction outweigh the burdens. And in this case, she said, the challenged statutes are sham public safety laws where there is no evidence of a benefit. In the new lawsuit, Planned Parenthood is asking ZIPS to look not just at the individual hurdles being placed in the path of women, but what they say is the cumulative effect. The law, the legal papers say, has resulted in closure of Planned Parenthood clinics in Yuma, Goodyear, Prescott Valley, and Chandler. And the Flagstaff Clinic can provide abortion services only one day a week. And then there are the numbers. Brian Howard, president of Planned Parenthood Arizona, said the cumulative effect of those laws have reduced the number of abortions performed from about 10,000 a dozen years ago to fewer than 6,500 now. Ryan Anderson, a top aide to Brnovich, put a different spin on the numbers. They are literally suing because their bottom line has been impacted, he said. Brnovich, who is not objecting to having choices become a party to the lawsuit, has made no secret that he is opposed to abortion. In his first campaign in 2014, he boasted that he was endorsed by Arizona Right to Life PAC and named as the only pro-life candidate in the attorney general race. We also have an obligation to protect and defend laws that concern the unborn, he said in campaign materials at that time. And that article was from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. And the headline was, Anti-Abortion Group Wants to Help Defend State in Planned Parenthood Suit. And with that, we've reached the end of this week's installment of AZ Law, the Thanksgiving week installment. Remember to listen to or download our program wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe as well. And since our primary purpose is to support the important services provided by Sun Sounds of Arizona, don't forget to go to our website, arizonaslaw.org, and donate to Sun Sounds there. We have several plans to grow and improve this program in the coming months. January, we'll start our increased offerings. But hey, your comments and suggestions on how you think this program could be better are always welcomed, especially since this is a brand new program. Email me at paul.wyke.azlaw at gmail.com. And Wyke is spelled W-E-I-C-H. So with that, I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you for listening to AZ Law.